0: At the edge of the Bible lies a book nearly forgotten. This book, which is actually a letter, is almost as neglected as the mysterious author who wrote it. See, the book is simply one chapter and one page in your Bible, and it appears right before the book that everyone wants to read, the book of Revelation, so it's really easy to skip over. However, maybe now more than ever, the contents of this book need to be rediscovered and amplified. The author writes an emergency letter telling believers to wake up, contend for the faith. The false teachers are all around. But never forget, God keeps you in his hands. And so with that introduction, let's dive in to the book of Jude. Verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now, two questions should immediately arise. First, who... Is this Jude and who is this James? So we're introduced to this guy named Jude, but like most things in the Bible, there's so much more going on to the story. The Greek name that's used for this name is Eudas. Now if you say that out loud to yourself, it may sound like another name from the New Testament that you might be familiar with. Eudas, Eudas. What does that sound like? Judas. And in fact, in the Greek, this name is exactly the same. It's Eudas. Now, the question is, is this the Judas that betrayed Jesus? And the answer to that is, no, obviously not. So then what information do we have about this Eudas, this Jude? Well, we know from the text in verse 1 that he's also the brother of James. But that's a frustrating problem because you're like, James who? You just told us Jude, he's the brother of this James, but can we know some more about James to figure out who this Jude is? Now that might be a hard question for us to answer, but for the first readers of this book, they would have known exactly what James he was talking about. What James was there in the early church that was so significant and so prominent that all you had to do was say James and everyone would know who you're talking about? The answer to that is James the Just and we know a lot about James the Just. A couple important notes. First, we know from a fourth century historian named Eusebius quoting a second century historical record that this James the Just was known as Camel Knees, and he sort of got that nickname because it was said that he prayed so much on behalf of the people that as he stayed in prayer on his knees day after day, year after year, that he developed calluses on his knees. And so it's this beautiful image of a faithful servant of the Lord who's continually praying so much that he develops camel knees. The second important note comes from a different historian, a contemporary of someone named Jesus of Nazareth by the name of Josephus. And Josephus says that this James the Just was actually the brother of one named Jesus, the Christ. So Jesus had a brother. The question is, what do the scriptures make of such a claim? In the Gospel of Matthew, we are told Jesus was teaching in a synagogue and the people were astonished and they said, Where does this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother called Mary? And are not these his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Matthew 13, 54 and 55. And this brings us back full circle to exactly who this Eudas, this Jude, is. This Jude is the brother of... Of James and the brother of Jesus of Nazareth." Now I know what some of you might be thinking, wait a second, I thought Mary was a virgin. And the answer to that is yes, at the conception of Jesus. But subsequent to that, there's nothing to say that she and Joseph didn't go on having a normal marriage with normal relationships. Now, there are some people who hold to something called the perpetual virginity of Mary. And they would say that Mary was a virgin prior and subsequent to the birth of Jesus till the end of her life. Now, there's nothing that in the scriptures that would lead us to believe that. And the clear testimony of the early church says that after Jesus, Mary and Joseph went on with their marriage. But for those who hold those views, they would say that maybe Joseph had children before he married Mary. Or some would say that maybe the word in Greek is brother, but we're talking more something along the lines of a cousin, not a literal blood brother. Now, we don't have any reason to doubt the gospel of Matthew using the word brother, but no matter where you land on this issue, this is what's important. Jude, whether cousin, half-brother, whatever it may be, was brought up knowing Jesus in a unique and intimate way. He grew up alongside of him. And so what he has to say and what he has to offer us about the will of this Jesus is incredibly important. We know from the Gospel of Mark that the majority of Jesus' family thought he was crazy. There's this instance where Jesus has a crowd gather around him and he appoints the 12 disciples. And the gospel of Mark informs us of this. It says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. See, they thought he was crazy. But something so significant, something so cataclysmic would happen to this Jude that he would lay everything on the line for his big brother. His testimony would ultimately be sealed in blood. He goes from thinking his brother is crazy to becoming a lifelong follower of not only his big brother, but his Lord and Savior. We see this idea expressed by Jude in the very first sentence, when he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, it may not seem like that big of a deal to us as modern people, but Jude is a man saturated in the Hebrew scriptures. And for the first readers of this book, something would immediately stand out. The phrase, servant of Jesus Christ, would draw people back to the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. See, all the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament were identified as servants of the Lord. This word Lord in your English Bibles is always capitalized when it's representing the covenantal Hebrew name of God. So it's Yahweh. So you see David, Abraham, Moses identified as servants of the Lord or servants of Yahweh. But Jude has changed the formula. Where Yahweh's name once belonged, now he puts in that place Jesus This is a Jewish way of saying, this Jesus is more than just a man. He's more than just my brother. He's on equal standing with the God of Israel. Second, he says, Jesus Christ. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is from the Hebrew word Mashiach, the Messiah. Jude is saying, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. In and through him, all the promises of God are finding their yes and a men. With this in mind, we can now leave the first sentence of the book of Jude. And the book goes on to those who are called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, several important notes here. First, as a Christian, Jude is saying, you are beloved in God, the father. And out of that identity, he prays that three things would be multiplied unto you, mercy, peace, and love. Now, I don't know about you, but especially in the times that we are living in, I want that prayer upon me. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied upon you. These are incredibly comforting words. The other comforting component in this is that Jude says we are being kept for Jesus Christ. And the word kept being used here invokes imagery of inheritance. It's this idea that God is preserving us. He's saving us. We are the inheritance for Jesus Christ. He, the Father, by His sovereign hand will keep us safe and secure until the coming of the Son. And it's on that note that we can now leave behind the introduction to the book and dive into the heart of the letter. Jude verse 3 and 4. Beloved Now, that's a big section. Let's break that down. Jude is basically saying he was wanting to write a simple letter, maybe a letter of encouragement. He calls it a letter concerning common salvation. But something has occurred that has made him write a different type of letter, a letter filled with urgency. Jude tells his readers to contend for the faith. This word contend is a very powerful word in Greek. It refers to the exertions of an athlete and is similar to the word Paul used in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Essentially, Judas saying, don't you know that you're in a fight for the faith? Are you conditioned? Are you well-trained? Do you know the tactics of your enemy? Judas saying, contend for the faith. And this part is important. Contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Now, this is important, this idea of once and for all. See, there are essential truths to Christianity, Christianity the fundamental building blocks of it. Christians can agree to disagree on a number of things, and we can agree to to debate and dialogue, but there's certain essential components. Christ is King. Christ is Lord. He was crucified, buried, and resurrected. He was sent by the Father, and in turn, He sends His Spirit. We are saved by His grace through faith. These are the elements that are once and for all delivered to the saints, and we have to hold on to those, hold fast to those, contend for those, apogonizomai, At all costs, we must maintain the once and for all faith delivered to the saints. Now, Jude goes on and he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who were long ago designated for this condemnation. Two key points, certain people and crept in unnoticed. There are some false teachings that are so obviously false that even if you've just been a Christian for a week, you you can smell it a mile away. Like, you know something's wrong with this. Something's fishy with it. That's not Jude's concern. Jude's concern is not the type of teaching that is clearly contrary to the gospel, clearly contrary to the faith once and for all delivered. What he's making note of is that certain people have crept in unnoticed. These teachings and these teachers, it's, it's subtle, it's sneaky. And before you know it, the seeds have germinated and the weeds have taken root. And all of a sudden you wake up and the weeds are everywhere. And even to begin starting to pull them out, you unknowingly and unwillingly have to take up non-weeds to get them out. Jude's concern is that people are sneaking into the church and it's unnoticed. Now, that was true of Jude's circumstance. What is true of today? Have subtle and sneaky false teachers and teachings sneaked into the church today? One of the things Jude wants to draw our attention to, in particular, is the behavior of these false teachers who have crept in on notice. He says that as they creep in unnoticed, they pervert the grace of God. Or maybe a better way to think about that is they twist the grace of God. See, the idea is not that they come out and explicitly deny the Lord Jesus or explicitly, explicitly deny God. They on the contrary, affirm the existence of God, affirm a faith in Jesus, but then with their behavior and their lifestyle, they live otherwise. That's this idea of twisting the grace of God. So how does that work out? Now, we can't be certain about that, but maybe it looks something like this. They say they believe in Jesus and are his followers, but then they teach, which is true, that because of God's grace, we are forgiven. But then the twist is, since we're forgiven, who cares about the way we live? Why don't we go on sinning so that grace may abound? If God's so gracious and forgiving, let's keep on sinning and living how we want, because it's always going to be forgiven. And that's this idea of twisting the grace of God, or people who pervert the grace of God. And because of that, Jude gives them a specific title. He says they are ungodly or godless. The Greek word that's used here is asabes. Jews in the Greco-Roman world use this word to describe not theoretical atheism, but practical godlessness. And what do I mean by that? It's this idea that you, again, confess God, confess Jesus, but you live in a way that says otherwise. You speak one truth, but your behavior demonstrates something to the contrary. Now, this is where the ancient world and our world parallel. I mean, is that not the case in our culture? I mean, the vast majority of people claim to hold a belief in God, and the majority even may claim to believe in Jesus. But then if we look around at culture as a whole, does it look like we're living our lives in accordance with the teachings of Jesus? See, we may say one thing but our life demonstrates another. And Jude says doctrine and behavior have to align. Now here's the convicting part. It's easy to point out there and say, oh yeah, there's people over there who are fake Christians or there's people over here who say they're followers of Jesus, but look at the way they live. The convicting and courageous thing is always to say, well, what about about me? Where is my life not in alignment with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know how important the moment we are in actually is? The world needs Christians to show the world the grace and love of Jesus. I mean, the world is going mad. People are filled with anxiety and stress. Good is called evil, evil is called good. We don't know what the future holds. Now, more than ever, we need Christians to glorify God, not only with our mouths and our lips and our words, but with our behavior and our lifestyle. We need our theology and our action to match. Jude says, contend for the faith. Epaganizamai, don't let up. Now, it's really easy in this current lockdown to get spiritually lazy, to become lethargic with spiritual exercise, but we can't take our foot off the pedal. We need to be disciplined, we need to be in the word, praying, understand there's a spiritual reality at work. Contend for the faith. The world needs Christians now to show them that Jesus is king and he is the way, the truth, and the life. We're gonna be continuing our journey through the book of Jude for the next few weeks. But before we close, I'd like to center us on something. Jude tells us to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered. Now, what is that faith all about? That faith is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is in and through him, his cross, his death, his resurrection, that he defeats Satan's sin and death. And he freely offers life and life more abundant. His grace is available for you today. And so as you trust in Him, go today leaving and knowing that the sovereign hand of Almighty God keeps you as an inheritance until the return of the Son, Jesus the Christ.